BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, everyone. Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Thursday, April 27th, 2023. It's about 11 o'clock in the morning here on the East Coast of the United States, five in the evening, just north of Rome, Italy, from where our much esteemed guest, Alistair Crook, joins us today. Alistair, as always, it's a pleasure. Uh, welcome back uh, to the show. Pleasure's mine. Um, I, I want to um, talk to you uh, about an interesting piece that you wrote, a fascinating piece that you wrote called Europe Has Lost Its Guiding Myth. Uh, but before we do, there were two uh, public statements made recently that caused uh, kerfuffles in Europe. Let me start with the more recent of the two, which is a statement by the Chinese ambassador to France, who for some reason uh, said, oh, and those uh, former uh, Soviet satellite countries in Eastern Europe aren't really independent sovereign nations there's no treaty or international law that recognizes it now the folks in beijing have walked that back but i'm wondering what kind of problems did this cause uh and how or why would he famously disciplined chinese diplomat make a statement like this well i don't know why he made it of course but um i think it it was really um, intended uh, to suggest it is time that the West and Europe um, actually paid attention um, to international law and how it um, how it refers. Uh, I think particularly they may have in mind the case of Kosovo um, in Serbia, whereby um, the Europeans organized a referendum. Um, for secession of Kosovo, effectively. Um, and although that is, they say, illegal because their borders mustn't be touched, they're all there, nonetheless, they had a special court hearing which gave Europeans the right, um, if you like, uh, to treat Kosovo as a separate state. Of course, Serbia does not recognize that. It's still an issue uh, there. So I think it was probably intended, but didn't go well uh, as an effort to say, you know, you can't play, you know, too loose with law and international law and the UN in the way in which you've been doing it. And for example, these states have not got a proper ratified um, position. Look, it doesn't make any difference to uh, the, the sort of day-to-day -day business. I mean, just as Kosovo goes on in Serbia, but... Nonetheless, I think it was just a sort of warning shot to the Europeans, and they didn't like it. Does uh, China recognize Crimea as uh, a legitimate, valid, lawful part of Russia? They don't say. Uh, they don't say that uh, um, particularly. Um, but they probably do 
um, because in the UN Charter, and they work to the UN Charter, and this is the point that they're making to the UN Charter, and that UN Charter does provide for um, a referendum and secession uh, of a state, providing that it is approved by the population. Um, so I don't know technically, legally, what the you know what their legal people say, uh, but I would expect that China would accept that because they do view this as within the bounds of, of, of the of the UN Charter, that secession, providing it is properly approved by um, legal authority, the Security Council, uh, and a referendum taken is, is valid. Of course, Crimea wasn't approved by the Security Council, but it right. was approved by referendum. Right. Um, the second statement that I want to um, draw your, to which I want to draw your attention, which will segue nicely into your piece about Europe losing its guiding myth, is French President Emmanuel Macron's call for Europe to reduce its dependency on the United States and develop its own uh, strategic autonomy. Why did this cause a, as you put it so nicely, only you could say it this way, a transatlantic temper tantrum? Well, that's what it was, yeah. And, I mean, they just, I mean, on the face of it, you know, what Macron said is not so radical, not so bizarre. He said, let's be equidistant from right. China and the United States because we've got interests in both those places. I mean, this is hardly stuff of the revolution. But, I, I mean, the, the implications of it um, uh, were really so large for, for the Europeans because, I mean, they have, I mean, thrown their lot in so completely with the United States, becoming vassals, becoming basically a province of the United States. In political terms, we are just a distant province of the United States. And that happened when they imposed the sanctions on Russia and went all down that route, and they can't get back. I mean, they can't get back from the route. Even this week, they're now considering a 12th round or 11th and a half round of more sanctions on Russia, if only they can find the things to sanction still. So it's very, you know, it just points up how Europe has, without thinking it through properly, put itself in a position from which they cannot retreat and it's getting worse and worse. The consequences of these decisions that they made have led them into a cul-de-sac and they can't retreat. On one hand, some of Europeans want uh, Europe to go even further towards America, Others wanted to go in the other direction. They're a mess. It's a mess. And President um, Putin himself, perhaps with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, has gone even farther when, in response to the silence by German leadership uh, to the revelation by Seymour Hersh, the great American investigative <laughs> journalist, that the United States Navy and Central Intelligence Agency destroyed the Nord Stream uh, pipeline between uh, Germany and Russia, President Putin said, well, what do you expect? The United States still occupies Germany as it did immediately after World War II. I mean, that's pretty strong language, but it's not inconsistent, I submit, with what you just said, nor is what you just said inconsistent with reality. Exactly. 
And I, I mean, you know, this is this is under the kitchen table conversation in in Italy and in Germany and elsewhere, uh, in the sense that um, you know, here we are in Italy, and how many American bases do you think we have here in Italy? One hundred. One hundred. American bases here including, in Italy. if I am wrong, stop me, nuclear weapons. Including nuclear weapons, exactly. Also here, and Italian pilots are trained um, for the delivery of nuclear weapons on um, uh, their airplanes. So, yes, I mean, and so even parts of Italy, I mean, Sicily, I, I, some, I have saw a letter that was delivered by the U.S. Embassy in Sicily when someone complained about damage that was done by Americans in Sicily. I mean, a helicopter destroying um, crops right. and things. And the embassy said, well, uh, under the law, you are an administered occupied territory and therefore do not qualify for any compensation. So, Ooh. I mean, there it was in writing that, you know, Sicily uh, at least is still you know, formally occupied territory. So I think, you know, this is all, I mean, I'm sure the Chinese ambassador wasn't thinking of this, but there are a lot of these things where, you know, what is the legal status of, of, of things? And uh, I think his point is that, um, you know, and the Chinese and Russian point is we have to go back and, and strictly adhere to international law, not to the rules, the rules-based order. It has to be done according to international law. So I think that's the point he was probably uh, uh, probably making. And yes, you know, there is a, a, a sort of feeling, no one says it publicly because, as you know, in Europe we're not allowed to say these things publicly. Um, the press is tightly, tightly controlled. Uh, was even at least you, at least you have Tucker Carlson. We don't have a Tucker Carlson in Europe. Wish we did, but even so, uh, I, I think this was the point to try and get this across. All right, and of course, you you said we have Tucker Carlson. You meant we had had. Uh, well, Tucker he Carlson. popped up. Although again. you know, I, I I saw his tweet last night. He'll he'll. Uh, He'll be back. I don't know uh, under what circumstance, but his uh, his audience is enormous and uh, salivating uh, for his return. He, of course, is a is a friend and a former uh, colleague of mine. But into this maelstrom of um, American military dominance throughout uh, Europe, uh, American military destruction of European property with no uh, um, material uh, consequence. Uh, enter the neocons. What what do the American neocons want? What what is their dream besides driving Vladimir Putin from office? These are the people uh, behind. They're in both political parties. They run the State Department. Whether Donald Trump is president or Joe Biden is president or Barack Obama or George W. Bush doesn't matter. Um, what do they want? Well, I mean, these neocons spread across into Europe, of course, and we have them in the German Green Party, very obviously. I mean, they are clearly, completely um, neocon. They want the destruction of Russia. They want, uh, of course, the Green Agenda too, but they want the destruction. Uh, This is the sort of fusion between the Green Agenda and the neocons. 
has taken place in Europe and parts of it. So you get that from no, it's a it's a Brussels bizarre Brussels. it's a it's a bizarre fusion, at least from the American perspective, because over here the Greens are hard left, and the neocons neoconservatives once were lefties now are politically conservative, not traditional conservatives, which is no foreign wars, not the Robert Taft style conservative, but the sort of George W. Bush style conservative. What what kind of an odd um, symbiotic relationship do the lefty greens and the righty neocons have? Uh, it, it was. Uh, it is odd because the Green Party, German Green Party, was a, originally a traditional leftist party, anti-nuclear, da da da. You know all of that, and then they've now shifted um, into a sort of extreme North Atlanticism, uh, whereby they ask to be, if you like, America's North Atlantic sort of proconsul in Europe. Mm. And um, so it is a strange. I mean, I can't totally explain how in 20 years they, they evolved into this, but they have support in the Brussels, quite strong support in Brussels, in the Commission, and there's a neocon, very strong neocon level, and of course in East Europe, in Poland and the former Soviet Republic, who are also salivating for neocon policy towards Putin uh, and Russia. And uh, what are the what have the neocons wanted? Well, where it comes together with the green is quite interesting. Is that the the policy of the green, in the sense, is using this crisis to enforce um, green policies in Europe on every state, not allowing each state to make their own decision, but weapons have to be bought communally. We have to do this. We have to do that um, in, for a Ukraine. So they're moving it towards a sort of world government type of uh, structure, a form of, you know, Davos, if you like, that they are going to have uh, a, a very controlled Europe um, that runs um, to uh, uh, an agenda which is transnational, which is global which gives us, and so, you know, the sort of controls they're looking for are very big. The Europeans, the Union is at the moment discussing whether Europeans should be allowed to eat more than 13 kilos of meat a year. Mm. Because it's, it, sounds like, it sounds like your countrymen got out just in time. <laughs> yes, Boris, but paradoxically, <laughs> the elites want them back in. <laughs> that was the point of the coup d'état against um, uh, the last two prime ministers. Was the, the And this is the deep, not the same deep state as yours, this is the bureaucratic state in Britain, um, working um, with the, if you like, um, Brussels, in order to create the circumstances in which Britain will be brought back into the, right, let, into let's, the get, let's get back to American neocons. When I when I see the word or hear the word neocon, I think of um, Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs Victoria Newland. You, of course, are familiar with her uh, public persona. Uh, you recall that piece that you and I watched, uh, where she called for an invasion of Crimea 
supported by American arms. I think she's crazy. I think this would be tantamount to World War III, but that's the neocon attitude. What are the myths that the neocons believe? You ask in your piece, do the neocons believe their own myth? Yes. Uh, and I mean, the principal myth uh, is one uh, that the Soviet Union took the wrong turn and should have adopted a liberal, neoliberal economic structure in the 90s, instead of which um, they continued with centralized Soviet bureaucratic planning, and that that has left them as a weak, fragile, broken state, one that if you give a little push, the whole thing will collapse um, like a, I don't know, like a sort of dried up leaf. Um, and uh, this is a myth that is very powerful, um, that they think, you know, and they think China is making. Yellen's speech the other day was about China making the same mistake. China making the same mistake and sort of moving away from the international, the global order, and being much more state you know, state-ordered economically, and that this was a great error, she was saying in her, in her speech the other day. Paradoxically, Xi and Putin see things the other way around, that actually see the West as the economically fragile um, a component. And that they are the most more because of their attempt to move away from the neoliberal economic system towards much more self-sufficient economics that will give sovereignty the key. Do the do the neocons actually believe that the war in Ukraine can, will, or should result in uh, President Putin's removal from office? You know, I mean, I find it quite hard to answer that because I would say it's both yes and no. I think that some of them already have convinced themselves um, that Russia is a sort of fragile, broken structure that is about to collapse when actually its economy is booming. I mean, I have a friend who's just been monthly in, in Moscow and the economy is going, is great. I mean, you know, in the UK, food inflation as a 20%, 22% food inflation in England is at 22% by the uh, central bank latest statistics. Let me stop you right here. The, the uh, Joe Biden imposed European supported economic sanctions on the Russian economy have not made a dent Am I right? Not, not on the and whereas in Russia, food inflation is zero point zero eight percent, and and inflation overall, the country is two point eight percent, and in and in Europe, it's over ten percent inflation. Food inflation is about twenty percent. So, and they are growing, and Russia is booming, it has no problems. Uh, but of course, the narrative still goes back. This is the myth narrative still keeps back. The economy is weak, the economy is fragile. Any moment now, it will collapse, and Putin will be gone in the chaos that will ensue. But you know, that's because they're stuck in the thinking of 1998 when, you know, 
Russia was vulnerable to Western financial structures. But what, that's what Putin has done, is he's rebuilt the economy. And this is really, I just want to say, because it's so important, you know, everyone talks about the, the Chinese-Russian project as being about the war in Ukraine. And of course, that's the keystone in some respects. But it is also the move to get away from, if you like, the Anglo-American economic structures in order to get um, some form of sovereignty back. And that's right. what they're saying to Africa. That's what they're saying in South America. For sovereignty, you need to go back to the old 19th century form of more closed economy with small trading, external trading model, the, the work of people like Friedrich List and others of that 19th century who attacked Adam Smith's idea. And this is why you're having the run on the dollar at the moment, is because this is suddenly these states are trying to move towards some sort of um, some sort of sovereignty again, right, and right. China and Russia are encouraging it, of course. The um, documents that uh, the top secret American uh, Pentagon documents, which were uh, recently leaked, uh, the government blames one uh, 21-year-old part-time National Guardsman on this. Most of us can't imagine how he could have done this on his own. But nevertheless, the government does not deny their authenticity or their accuracy. And one of the takeaways from these documents uh, is the belief by American senior military leadership that the Ukrainian war is going very badly, uh, that Ukrainian um, air defenses have been degraded to near zero and will be at zero by early June, uh, which is just a month away uh, now. It is that view of the futility of NATO in Ukraine, shared by Brussels, by Rome, by Berlin, by Paris, by London. Yes, it's shared particularly amongst the uniform branch. I mean, the, the military personnel all understand that it's a disaster in the making. They realize that. They know they have no weapons or um, ammunition uh, to give to Ukraine. Uh, they can see what is coming, but we are not allowed to say it. Uh, I mean, by we, I mean the established does not allow this narrative to go out because they have to keep in line with Washington uh, on this. Washington may be shifting a little bit, who knows? I mean, there are signs, there have been quite a lot of articles which are saying we should go for a ceasefire. Of course, I don't believe that a ceasefire is workable. Uh, I spent a lot of my time doing ceasefires, many, many ceasefires. Yes, yes. Does and Washington... I keep, keep saying to governments that come and say, can you open a channel of communication? We want to get somebody back from, I don't know, Iran or something like that. And I keep saying to them, opening a channel, no problem. The problem is, what are you going to say when it's open? What right. are you going to say? Have you thought that through? The answer is almost certainly no. Never. They never thought it. And I then say, what are you going to say when you get a response from the other side? Have you thought that moves through or the one after? No. Just how, we how, want a chance. How unhappy do you think the American State Department was to learn that the President Xi of China and President Zelensky of Ukraine spoke on the phone for 90 minutes the other day? Uh, now, they were 10,000 miles apart, obviously, but each uh, issued some uh, talking points, readouts, 
which were complementary uh, of the other. Yeah, I read the I, I read the uh, readout. I mean, I'm quite sure you're right that they're getting into a, a lather about it because it's China and will China get involved in this and this is frightening and everything. Well, but they shouldn't be. I mean, as I say, I read it through as they're doing what I did time and time again is just simply keep a channel there for when you need it and for when the time is right. So I was kept being asked, could I do a ceasefire by the European Union when I was in Israel and Palestine and these things? And I keep saying, you know, you can only do these things when the tide turns. You know, you can't, you know, you can't be King Canute and say, you know, the tide must go out because right. it won't do that. So timing is absolutely key and the timing is doesn't favor a ceasefire at the moment. It's not the right moment for a ceasefire. I mean, certainly from Russia's perspective and probably from the Ukrainian one too. I don't know so much. I would, I would imagine if President Putin, uh, if President Zelensky called up President Biden and said, I'm going to ask for a ceasefire, Biden would say no. I'm sure. And this is one of the problems with the ceasefire is, I mean, you know, and Z knows this very well. There's no point talking to Zelensky. I mean, he hasn't got the, you know, he hasn't got the power. He hasn't got the, if you like, the final say. That's in Washington, clearly. Right. So it has to be, the ceasefire has to be agreed with Washington. And this certainly isn't the moment for Washington to do that. Just after declaring for a presidential run, they won't do that. Last um, subject matter for us. Uh, President Zelensky for months has been talking about a spring offensive. Hmm. It, it doesn't appear, his own offensive, not a Russian offensive, it doesn't appear as though it's going to come. It doesn't appear as though it is militarily uh, feasible, no matter what he may say uh, politically. That's correct. I mean, my, I'm absolutely, I follow it quite closely. I mean, the, the Ukrainian system, not just the military position and the contact line, but the, the Ukraine is getting close to entropy, whereby everything just freezes solid and it's not able to go forward. It just sort of sits in paralysis because it, it hasn't got the troops to do an offensive. It hasn't got the weapons to do the offensive. And I'm not sure if it has the political will at the stage, the energy to do uh, uh, an offensive. And... The Russians are just sitting there and they are taking advantage of um, the situation as more and more troops are sent into Bakhmut, Archimovsk, um, and are, are basically killed. And, you know, they don't have enough experienced troops. I mean, I think they may have 30,000 troops that could be the front end, but that's not much against, you know, what we're talking we started this the other way around. We started Ukraine the other way around with the economy of forces with Russia and a big army of Ukraine. Right. Now it's inverted. Now right. we have a very small Ukrainian army and we have a much larger uh, Russian force. Um, hey. These are the undeniable the dynamics of conflict, I'm afraid. The uh, Spanish newspaper El Pais hmm. quoted uh, in Brigadier General, uh, Ukrainian Brigadier General Melnik, this is just three days ago, yeah, I saw saying, it. unless we have 
four to six times the manpower and equipment of the Russians were hopeless and helpless. I'm paraphrasing, but it's an accurate paraphrase. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's really about, you know, if you go on the attack, that is, I mean, the minimum you, you need, I mean, this is the old rules of thumb of war, is you right. need at least three times the force that is the defensive force. I mean, this is not about Ukraine, this is the general view, Correct. but it could be three to five to six, right. something like right. that. But, that, but, but that, that is numerically impossible, inconceivable for the Ukrainians to uh, amend. Inconceivable. They'll put maybe 100,000 people, they have 100,000 un in uniform, most of whom have not been properly trained, who are um, there uh, against their will. Many of them just run as the first opportunity. Understandably, these, I don't want to call them, make them seem cubs. These are boys, you know, taken and put there with no training. They go into their positions late at night. They wake up to find they're on the front line of Bakhmut, where the sort of life expectancy is in hours or days. And, you know, they don't know what to do. So they just turn and run. So they may have 100,000 in uniform, but maybe 20 to 30,000 only of those are real troops in the sense that they're going to want to and are willing and are able to, to fight in a coherent way. So I think that's understood much more widely. It's still not really said. And now Washington, the Pentagon sort of humming and hawing, say we're going to be criticized, whatever we do, if we do this or we don't give enough. There isn't a wonder weapon that right. will change this. Alistair Crook, always a pleasure. No matter how gloomy the world is, you always <laughs> enlighten it for us. Enlightenment leads to understanding. Thanks for joining us. We'll look forward to seeing you next week. My pleasure. Thanks of course. very much. Bye for More now. as we get it. <laughs> Judge Napolitano for Judging Freedom.